Hello again, everyone, and welcome back to another year at The Bar. The Bar on Healthcare is a podcast produced by the Aon Health Solutions Group, focusing on developments in federal and state health and welfare law and their impact on employer group health plans. I'm J.D. Pirro of the Legal Consulting Group. And hello, everyone. I'm Carrie Willis, also with the Legal Consulting Group. If you're listening to this podcast on Aon.com, we're very glad to have you with us. But it'd be easier for you and frankly, better for us if you made us part of your regular feed. You can find us anywhere you get your podcast on any of the streaming services from Google Play to Apple Podcasts. Then subscribe, tell your friends. And if you're so inclined, please leave us a kind review. And JD, the bar is open. Come right in, your favorite spot awaits. But of course, you're the guest here, so you get to choose where you sit, and we will give deference to that decision. And there's a reason for that. Deference is what we're going to talk about today on this first episode of The Bar in 2024. Specifically, we're going to be talking about a legal doctrine known as Chevron deference, which is the subject of one of the first oral arguments held by the Supreme Court this year. There are two cases, Loper Bright Enterprises versus Ramondo and Relentless Inc. versus the Department of Commerce. And these cases were argued recently in front of the Supreme Court, and they have enormous implications for administrative law. Now, you might be thinking, what do I care about administrative law? I tune into your podcast to listen and learn more about healthcare law. Well, there's a reason we're talking about this, and that's because the decision will potentially affect the agencies we deal with in health and welfare law, HHS, the IRS, and the DOL. So in this case, which doesn't involve healthcare, it could have enormous implications for healthcare, even though none of those agencies, HHS, IRS, the DOL, none of them are involved in this case. But you know what is involved in this case? It's a movie. And well, not really a movie, but when I first heard the facts of this, Carrie, I tell you, I am, it immediately called to mind, well, let me get into the case. Actually, both cases here, because the two cases here, Loper Bright Enterprises and Relentless Inc., I, I love that name, Relentless, they were brought by herring fishermen against the National Marine Fisheries Service. Now, under a law passed by Congress, the Fisheries Service was authorized to require the fishermen to carry one or more federal observers on their boats. And these observers would collect data for conservation and management of the fishery, such as, for example, data in order to prevent overfishing. Now, for you movie fans out there, if this is ringing a bell with you, that's because federal observers on fishing boats were a big part of the plot of the movie Coda just a couple of years ago, Children of, of Deaf Adults, which won an Academy Award for Best Picture. Now, the legal issue here wasn't whether the government could place observers on board the boat, because clearly they could. The issue was, who had to pay for them? The agency ran short of its budget to hire observers, and it passed a rule that said the fishermen had to pay for them. And the fishermen, not surprisingly, sued. Problem for the agency? The statute didn't explicitly say who pays for the fishermen. So, Carrie, how does Chevron deference help the agency argue that they can make the fishermen pay the cost of the observers? Well, so the concept of Chevron deference goes back to a 1984 SCOTUS decision called Chevron versus the National Resources Defense Council. And ironically, this was an EPA case, and the EPA at the time was headed by none other than the mother of current justice, Neil Gorsuch, and Gorsuch Burford. 
And in the Chevron case, the Supreme Court ruled that the court should defer to an agency's interpretation of a federal statute that the agency would otherwise be charged with enforcing if, one, the statute is ambiguous, and two, the court finds that the agency's interpretation is a reasonable one. If those two things are found, then the court has to give deference to the agencies, even if that interpretation produces a reading of the law that isn't exactly how the court itself would interpret it. Carrie, I really have to stop you here because ambiguous statutes, I mean, do we ever deal with those in healthcare law? Any situation ever come up where there's ever an ambiguous term in healthcare law? Well, it's funny that you should mention that because the hypothetical that Justice Kagan brought up during oral argument was actually a healthcare related one. She asked whether a new healthy cholesterol level was it a dietary supplement or was it a drug? And that was the hypo that she presented to the plaintiffs to, I think, underscore the fact that these are very technical issues and agency personnel has the expertise to to make interpretations of these very technical types of provisions. And this is something that, you know, obviously we deal with in health and welfare law, I think also in employee benefits law all the time. I mean, I don't want to go back into 15 years ago when I was doing pension law, but pension terms, you know, non-discrimination regulations like that, I mean, we deal with those all the time. Where the Chevron situation comes in, I mean, two things. First of all, the agency doesn't have to come up with the best reading of the statute under the Chevron doctrine. All the agency has to do is establish that it's a reasonable interpretation. Now, as you point out, the defenders of the Chevron doctrine argue one reason for Chevron is that it preserves administrative expertise. The reason that this case is so close and, and why Chevron is, is now at risk is because in this situation, there really is no expertise called for. This is they're not being asked to interpret parts per million in in oil that can go into water or something like that. There's just a question of who pays the fee, who, who pays the observers. Is it the agency or is it the fishermen? Uh, and that's why the Chevron doctrine is really at risk here. But the other part of this, the other thing that Chevron does, it avoids courts making policy decisions. And I would actually even go further than that. It, it avoids courts getting into the issue of actually administering the laws. Congress often leaves ambiguous terms in statutes for agencies to interpret. Uh, a lot of times, however, the, the Chevron doctrine isn't needed because there's an explicit grant of authority from the Congress to the agency to interpret these terms, such as defining how many parts per million can go into a certain food or a certain substance, or as you point out, whether a certain drug or a certain disease can be treated by a drug or by a drug supplement. But healthcare law in particular involves a lot of very technical issues, particularly in specialty areas like pharmacy and mental health. And Kerry, you've gone through the mental health parity regulations. I mean, you'd be hard pressed to find, I think, any of those regulations in the statute itself, wouldn't you? Yeah, I mean, I think that gets into really technical issues of how do you determine parity, right? And the agency in that particular case has to make some assessments on how you actually determine whether parity is met or not within some broad parameters that are in the statute, but certainly some of the very technical mathematical formulas are not included in the statute. The other example I would give you, and this was in some of the briefs that were submitted, some of the friend of the court briefs, just if you look at at Health and Human Services and the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, just in the past year, 
The agency has issued a notice of proposed rulemaking every two weeks. These include things like annual payment rates for skilled nursing facilities, proposed drug misclassification rules, and what qualifies as braces for reimbursement under Medicare. Now, these are very technical issues, and they come up very frequently. So it really is impractical for Congress to draft and update such technical statutes to address every issue that appears in the real world in a practical setting. So that's the other reason for Chevron deference and and why it's been utilized for the past however many years since 1984. Yeah, I think it's been out there. And there was another doctrine before that, which I think was Skidmore doctrine. But yeah, Chevron has been out there for ever since 1984. Where it gets into trouble is that the concept is, the basic constitutional concept is, courts get to say what the law is. And if there is too much delegation of authority to the agency to interpret these terms, then you get into the question of the non-delegation doctrine. Has Congress really transferred over its power to make laws to the executive branch, which really can't be the case. There's a There are a lot of situations in health and welfare law, there are ambiguous terms, but there are also a lot of situations, I would say probably the majority of situations, where Congress has specifically granted the agency the power to make these types of interpretations on the technical statutes, things like that. One thing that the Chevron defenders have to deal with is, could Congress pass a law like Chevron today? I mean, could Congress pass a law that says where a statute is silent, or ambiguous on an issue, the agencies get to fill the gap. I think that would very quickly run into not just a a non-delegation problem, but even a problem under going back as far as Marbury versus Madison. The court gets to say what the law is, and the Congress gets to pass laws. The the agency doesn't get to pass laws. I know non-lawyers will probably sit here and say we're making some fine distinctions here, but I, I think in many cases we are. But at least in the area of healthcare law, This is a decision that if they do decide to overturn Chevron, and I think just based on, I mean, I'd be interested in your view, Carrie, if they do decide to overturn Chevron, I think there is going to be, if not an overturning, at least a substantial limitation of the doctrine here. I I think just the facts of it, based on the simple question, who pays for it, will probably give them an opening to overturn the doctrine. Now, whether they go as far as to reopen the whole question of ambiguity in prior decisions, I I think Barrett and Roberts will probably find a way to avoid that situation. But I do think that's a risk. What are are your thoughts on that? Well, let me respond to a couple of things. You brought up Marbury versus Madison, and and that was certainly a case that was cited in the briefs. I was around during Marbury versus Madison. I mean, it was an exciting case. It really was. Um, For the proposition that the court gets to say what the law is. The, The brief that cited that, though, didn't actually cite any case to support that proposition. And for a good reason. Neither Marbury nor any other 19th century opinion supported the argument that the courts, rather than the agencies, must be the primary or sole authority of what the law is in cases of statutory silence or ambiguity that involve that agency rulemaking. And the other thing to keep in mind about Marbury is that was really a case around a ministerial act that it was addressing and not an administrative one. As you remember, Marshall took that ministerial act and he created a whole system of constitutional law that we're all looked at today. Yeah, I agree. Marshall went far beyond just the ministerial act of determining who who gets to appoint that certain individual. I think that is something that proponents of overturning Chevron have cited, but I'm not sure how you know persuasive it is. But of course, that's my opinion, and I don't sit on the Supreme Court. Any of our law profs listening to this, we, Carrie and I, both support Marbury versus Madison. We have no interest (laughs) in overturning that doctrine whatsoever. 
And I think if Chevron is overturned, it will have real practical implications for administrative law, particularly in the healthcare area. If you just think about Medicare or Medicaid or CHIP and the deep expertise of the agencies in interpreting these really complex statutes, I think that's going to be a whole new world that we're um, dealing with. And I think the Supreme Court has not really cited Chevron much in probably the last eight years or so, but the lower courts have cited Chevron. So I think it's really going to have more of an impact at the lower court level than at the Supreme Court. Yeah. And I think if Chevron is either overturned or it's substantially limited, you will get situations where courts, the different lower courts are going to come to different interpretations. Also, if you're not going to defer to the agencies, what standard are you going to use? I mean, are you going to look at the best interpretation of the statute? Or are you going to look at, you know, standard rules of statutory construction and say, okay, well, this might be a reasonable view, but this is really, here's what I think is the best read of this statute. Yeah. And I think it's sort of an interesting proposition for a court that in Dobbs said we should leave questions up to the political process than to now say, well, agencies who serve at under the executive branch, who is democratically elected, we're not going to defer to that political process, but we think it would be better for courts to interpret ambiguous provisions. So I I think that's an interesting perspective that I think the court will have to address if they do, in fact, decide to overturn Chevron. Yeah, and I think a lot of that will depend on, in fact, who writes the decision. I think, for example, you get a very different answer if Kavanaugh or Alito writes the decision as opposed to if Roberts writes it, because Roberts will probably want to go with a very minimalist approach. But I think one thing in terms of reliance on these types of agency rules, one thing that that argues against the Chevron doctrine is this question of which came up, and particularly in the Brand X case that Justice Thomas had written a few years ago, which I think is probably dead in the water based on at least the oral arguments, is this idea that one agency could look at one statute and interpret it one one way, whereas another, the very same agency with a different president could look at the same statute and come to the exact opposite conclusion. If we're looking for consistency in administration of the law, that really almost begs for if you're overturning. Yeah, I think I disagree with that because that, again, that goes back to the political process and the executive is democratically elected and therefore priorities do change under the executive branch, depending on who's in the office. So that, I mean, that inconsistency may be there, but that's called, you know, elections. That's true. But it's one thing for a new administration to come in and get Congress to pass a law that says something different. I think it's really it's got a different feel to it. If you come in, you look at the same law and say, oh, you know what? I think this says something polar opposite. And I decide to, to do it that way. That, you know, that type of stuff should be left up to the most democratic of all the branches of government, which, which is Congress should be making that decision. Well, the last I heard the Constitution, all three branches of government were equal. But in in this particular case, writing the laws, some branches are more equal than others. And executing the law falls under the executive branch. That is true. Okay, with that last call, and it's a sad one, especially for people who are like me, alumni of Fordham University. The Emmy award-winning journalist Charles Osgood, who was the longtime host of CBS News Sunday Morning and a 1954 Fordham graduate who got a start at radio station WFUV 90.7 FM, died at his home in New Jersey last week. In almost 50 years at CBS, Charles Osgood was known for his distinctive voice, sense of humor, and predilection for bow ties. 
A master communicator, Charles Osgood could cover both hard news and poignant human interest stories with a wit and authenticity that endeared him to generations of listeners and viewers, both on Sunday morning and on his radio show, The Osgood File. Fordham University President Tanya Tetlow wrote, everything about Charles Osgood spoke of steadiness and integrity. He was the voice of reason in an often unreasonable world, and we will all miss him terribly. That we will, as we also will miss his traditional Osgood file sign-off. I'll see you on the radio. Carrie? And that's our report for this month. We'd like to thank our producer, Don Moorhead, for always making us sound better than we deserve. And from all of us here at Aon, I'm Carrie Willis. And I'm J.D. Pirro. Thanking you for your time this time, and until next time, the bar is closed. You've been listening to The Bar on Healthcare, an Aon podcast. Aon is not engaged in the practice of law. The information in this podcast is not intended as and should not be considered legal advice. Please consult your own legal counsel to obtain such advice.